Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Over The Bridge Podcast. We got two thirds, not two thirds, there's no maths gone. We got three quarters of the man in here today. <laughs> Flipping out. <laughs> got myself, Koyaku, uh, Bilal's in the building, Hello. Patrick's in the building. What's going on, Patrick? Um, yeah. And yeah, it's a Sunday morning, like bright and early. Myself and Patrick are kind of like recovering from previous day activities uh and and a yeah, walk when, just to be clear like it sounds yeah. bare vague it sounds like. it's not, not even vague. Yeah, it, it sounds like sound a bit really darker vague. than it, it probably is what did you do yesterday i was literally just at a family function and just fresting out eating bare food family yeah, function bare. yeah yeah man bare lockdown illegal. family illegal uh, uh, gatherings uh, and uh, what did i sorry um <laughs> <laughs> i mean i was uh with my wife, <laughs> you got a very small Watching family TV. anyway. It's just, it's just, yeah, yeah just, just two of you, man. Just the two of you, yeah, like family function, e- exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, but yeah, what you, what you guys been on this last week? Boy, I don't even remember that anymore. Like the weeks are just a blur. What did I do this week? Oh, I went to the theatre. I went to see Death of England, um, Delray, which was very, very, very good. Um, it's like a one man show essentially. Um, I say essentially it is a one man show mm-hmm. um, And yeah I've never really seen I've always wondered about performances like that Where it's just like one person throughout the whole thing And I was a bit like mm, I don't know what to expect Like is this going to be a bit weird Like is it going to be a bit abstract and conceptual But it was actually very well done um, The guy um, I think his name is Michael Balogun um, So I'm guessing um, He's a Nigerian guy But he's in, in the in the play Delray's a, like a Caribbean Brit so he like sort of he sort of takes off his mum like he says oh this is what my mum said and yeah like it was pretty good like his Jamaican accent was mm, was yeah good man I was thinking, oh, okay Michael Balagun <laughs> so um yeah no but yeah just the play in general was, was brilliant um it's about a man that um basically the guy is a, it's a monologue um and he's sort of just talking about his life um, and sort of how things kind of went wrong. Um, so he like he has a an ankle tag because um, he got into a bit of an altercation with the police. Um, so it's kind of like a, I guess, like a stop and search kind of profiling thing. Um, and he also has um, a white baby mum as well. So there's all of that. And yeah, it's it's a little bit chaotic, but it was it was brilliant, man. So um, I'd say everyone go and see it, but. It was the opening and closing <laughs> night, so that is so sad, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But Hopefully I think they can put it back on or something. Yeah, yeah. I think when when this thing ends, it will it'll be back at the National Theatre because yeah, everybody was very excited about it. And yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, that was that was the highlight of my week. Ah, oh, sick. Um, how about you, Bella? Yeah, I didn't go anywhere, so I'm like, so I'm, I'm bare jealous actually here in Patman. You know what? Even going central feels like a mission. I always feel like I'm going on an adventure. I was just here. <laughs> I've been in mm. West London for basically the whole year um, for a walk. That was calm. That was yeah. fun. Yeah, I've just been working. Honestly, I have nothing to report on. It's been a very, very COVID-19 week for me, man. Yeah, no, likewise. I think, yeah. I mean, from, from March or whatever, I've been predominantly within like a one mile, two mile radius of my yard. And like once in a while, venture a little bit further, but still pretty much in the south. So um, this week in particular was just work and chilling, like nothing, nothing special. Um, but cool, we're here today. 
Um, and we're actually joined by a very special guest, um, an old school guest, I should say. We all we all know her from uh, our time at Cambridge, and she's gone on to do some amazing things, um, very diverse, amazing things. <laughs> but yeah, I'll let I'll let Precious introduce herself. Hi, morning, guys. Really great to be here with you. So uh, my name is Precious Ayolade. I went to Cambridge with these gentlemen. It was a very interesting time for all of us. But um, yeah, I, after graduating, essentially went on to, I think diverse is a nice (laughs) way of describing just moving around, doing whatever the heck I wanted. Um, (laughs) I very quickly realised like corporate isn't for me. So after I graduated, I volunteered for a year in community action outside of London. Um, and then actually crowdfunded to do a master's in African studies because some people might know me as that girl who wrote her dissertation about Nollywood. Um, and I think that was my very first opportunity of like going viral. So I thought, okay, cool. Let me do a master's uh, in African studies at SOAS. But at the same time, having been the first year that like had their uni fees spiked to 9K, I was like, I'm not paying for this at all. Um, <laughs> So crowdfunded for that and then went on to do that master's for a year and had a really, really interesting time. But then was like actually looking at, it's so funny, when when something goes viral, you're like, oh, cool, like everyone cares, it's so important, right? And then I did the crowdfund and I got the funds that I wanted, but it wasn't as successful as I wanted it to be. So I was like, let me just move into a regular job. So ended up working in marketing for an academic program provider, which is really cool because I got to travel across Europe and the US. Um, But after doing that for two years, I was like, "Mm, I still love African film in Nigeria. Let me just move to Nigeria. So quit my job. (laughs) Without any form of like backup. And was like, okay, cool. I'm just going to start applying for jobs in Nigeria. And then having not thought about it particularly properly, realised that if I wanted to move to Nigeria, I was going to need to make a lot of money or have a sugar daddy. Now, sugar daddy... (laughs) (laughs) I didn't see that bit coming. It was one or the other, boy. It was one or the other. But actually ended up working instead for like a B2B communications agency here in London that specialises solely in African tech. And so have spent the last year and a bit actually working with like the most incredible clients um, who are building like amazing tech solutions to like big problems on the continent. Um, so yeah, really enjoyed that. And now I'm moving into like the VC space, which is venture capital for those who don't know. And I literally start that job tomorrow. So wow, mad, yeah. crazy journey, crazy from academia to was it marketing? Was it <laughs> to tech? yeah damn yeah you've 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 gone through a journey in you know a relatively short period of time um i wanted yeah just because i always find it interesting to get a bit more of the backstory of guests and like where you've come from etc so where are you from like where did you grow up what was your kind of like from childhood up until when i guess we met what was that journey like yeah so i So I'm Nigerian by heritage. I like to think of myself as British Nigerian, but I was born and raised in Brixton, South London. um, And I've been here ever since. So I grew up literally in Angel Town, went to primary school in Angel Town, went to your normal comprehensive secondary school and all girls school again in South. And it was really interesting because I would say that I went to predominantly black school. So all the girls are black. 
um, and at the time our teacher actually imported a lot of our head teacher imported a lot of teachers from Jamaica. So we had what? just a lot of aunties and uncles insulting us on our way to <laughs> achieving <laughs> academic success. It was really, really interesting. But so was this this was this at secondary school we're talking about? Yeah, this is at secondary school. Oh wow, okay. Okay. Yeah. So it was really interesting because I think a lot of people that I came across at Cambridge had like gone to grammar school, even black people had ended up at grammar schools mm-hmm. or had um, grown up in like predominantly white areas. It was only a few of us were like <laughs> in the trenches from the beginning. Um, and when I say trenches, I love South London. It's a very excellent place. So <laughs> not at all. But I think the culture shock that came when I got to Cambridge happened because I was also an army cadet when I was from the age of like 12 to about 18. And so I'd spent a lot of time in like predominantly white spaces when I went to camps and stuff, Mm. but they weren't necessarily wealthy people. They were just white people. Um, And I think that sometimes thinking you understand the group and, you know, we see as black people, right? You see some black people like, oh, this is what they're like. So going then to university and coming across like, what I understood to be like real wealth Mm. (laughs) uh it was interesting but yeah South London all the way up until literally they were like oh I think I got three A's in my AS levels and my dad was like so Oxford or Cambridge and I was like (laughs) and the thing for us is that so the school that I went to in South London it was predominantly black so it's called St Martin's in the field but there had been two I know that school you went St Martin's yeah of course yeah I knew that actually I know that school Yeah, yeah But the thing is, there had been two girls who had gone to Cambridge before I went to Cambridge and they were both white and they were sisters. So it was really interesting. Yeah. So like <laughs> of all the people, right, <laughs> school in South London. And what I'm thinking is that school is black. So how did the two white girls end up going? Wow, that's funny. I mean, they're, they're, they're both lovely girls as well. Yeah. Or women, rather. But so when I got those results, I mean, I was at Oxford or Cambridge, I was like, mm, I'm not really too sure. <laughs> like, I don't mm. know what all of this is. And so I had a very interesting year just being like, okay, maybe I can do this. Even though, because it's funny, when you have an example of something, if it doesn't look like you, it still kind of feels unattainable sometimes, especially at the age of, what, 17? Mm. Um, so, yeah, that, that's how I got to Cambridge. My dad was like, which one? And then my teachers, honestly, I had a lot of support. Definitely had a lot of support. Mm. They were like, yeah, absolutely. That's sick, man. And I think, well, I imagine that part of that comes from probably going to a school that was like predominantly black and having predominantly black, well, a lot of black teachers. That's so, when you actually mentioned the imported imported teachers from Jamaica, that spun me because even when I went to uh, a predominantly black um, primary school, it was still predominantly white teachers. Um, and then when I went to, I went to a grammar school. So like, that was obviously, you knew what that was going to be. So yeah. um, hearing about having like black teachers, it makes such a huge yeah. difference. I think I've had one black teacher in my entire, entire life. Like mm, from zero prime from like nursery to now. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've not had a single black teacher in my entire academic life. Wow. <laughs> That's mad, isn't it? <laughs> That's funny because like, Honest to God, I would say that my secondary school experience was so unique because our teachers, honest, <laughs> not that, not that they were like particularly threatening, but they just reminded me so much of my parents in that space, mm. bearing in mind that my parents are Nigerian, but just that the impetus to be like, you need to do better because the world outside isn't like this school. 
and the fact also that when when we were at school so when I was in year eight I started to act up as a lot of us <laughs> can say we did not because we were like ruder in any way but ultimately because you know a lot of intelligent children get bored quite quickly and I remember my teachers being like this is all well and good for now but best believe if you want to succeed you better start to behave <laughs> and just it's, it's the tone almost I don't think if that kind of information came from white teachers I would have listened in the same way yeah, no, I had a, what's, what's good, guys, man? You're all right, man. What's good, everyone? Tommy Dyer. Tom's right. in the building. What's up? Just came back from my hike. I woke up really early and went, just thought I'd have a hike um, about an hour and a half away. And then when I came back, there was just mad traffic. Well, it wasn't mad traffic. It was just a lot of, how shall I say, elderly drivers just driving well below speed limits. So safety first, but obviously I couldn't put the put my foot down on the car. But now, nah, when I was in school, anyway, like <laughs> when I was in school... You know Tom drives like a madman, you know? I don't, I don't. <laughs> the thing I don't, No, I don't, bro. They, you know? they was definitely driving speed limit and Tom yeah. was... No, no, no. The speed <laughs> yeah. limits here are mad. Like, so if, it, just, just for context, in Switzerland, if you drive, let's say like you do 50 and a 40, right? Maybe 55 and a 40. They will, you don't just get like a normal, like three points or, you know, fine you do in the UK. They fine you according to salary because you know some people here are, they got P's, so... People here get fined. The worst I heard was someone getting fined like two million francs, Jesus. which is I don't care Wait, who you are, it's still painful. my stomach hurts. No, <laughs> no, I'm careful. I'm careful. I have to be two careful. million francs. Yeah, that's how much you got fined. Not me. No, but- <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> I'm just winding your friends, bro. No way. This is my portion anyway. Not to not to get fined two million, but anyway. But <laughs> now, when I was in school, I had a black haired teacher. She was Nigerian, yeah. and. Her name was Miss Jibbono. She was, um, and she was a science teacher. The whole science, the whole science block was, yeah, it was aunties. And the way they just used to address you was so different. And I remember she, Miss Jibbono used to walk around and just pull people by the ear. And she's like, listen, I don't care. Tell your parents. Mm-hmm. She's like, listen, and because our school, most of, most of the kids, she was fairly diverse in it, kind of town. So it was kind of like, yeah. I want to say it was like 50%, 50, probably less than 50% white. And then the rest was just like ethnic minorities. So you just used to pull people by the ear and just be like, listen, yeah, I'm going to tell your parents I did this. I don't care. You're going to do well with your studies. I remember one time I was acting up in science. She brought me out and she's like, listen, yeah, you're a clever kid. She's like, you need to do better with your studies. Da, 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 da. You want to achieve something. She's like, listen, it, it's not easy for a black person to do well in this life. And I was like, I didn't understand. I was like 13, yeah. 14. And she's like, you will understand as you get older, but you just need to make sure you work hard. Da, 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 da. And by the way, I'm, She's like, I've got your mum's number on speed dial. I'll be telling your mum about how you're doing. So it was really high touch um, care from her. And I remember I had a, like my English teacher for three years. She was black. I had a maths teacher on year eight. He was black. Mr. Boachi, Ghanaian guy, used to just, ah, uh, used to speak to my mum and she in and parents' evening. you mad and just, you right. know. So it was different. The dynamic was different. And the encouragement from black teachers was very, very... Um, it was important and it was homely as well. And it kind of just got me going. Do you know what I mean? And discipline was there and was very much different. So I see where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, it, I feel like it goes beyond just like representation, but also like um, um, relating to kids um, that, you know, that come from a similar background and similar culture and also, mm-hmm. you know, will face the similar challenges that you have faced. Like it's, like the, I, I get it. Like the, the sort of tellings off that you would get, like it wouldn't feel as, combative or as condescending i think mm. i grew up with a lot of um i 
I've kind of resented authority quite a lot because the authority that was sort of doled out to me was very, um, it was very condescending. It was very like, it didn't, it didn't see me as a person, but just as a, as a problem. Mm. So I think when you grow up with that, it's, it's very difficult to kind of like take criticism because you don't know where that criticism is coming from. So like, I would say this, like when I, when I applied for Cambridge, like the majority of the teachers that I knew just laughed it off. Like not even just the students, but like the teachers that were sort of, cause we had like a whole like sort of Oxbridge kind of like special group. And I remember teachers just thinking you're applying there. And I was like, yeah, I am. Have you seen my grades? Um, there was only like one or two teachers that really kind of, you know, saw me as a whole person. Like I wasn't a perfect student, but at the same time, I wasn't just like a problem child. Um, and I think, yeah, it's it's so important in, in a kid's development just to, to have someone that sees you as a human. Do you know what I mean? And not just a black kid. That's just a problem. I think the yeah. role of educators is so important in a child's life. And like Precious, I'm, I'm just interested because obviously, like you said, you know, the teachers were proper supportive of you in getting to the point of going Cambridge. And then when you were at Cambridge, like, you know, you mentioned earlier that you went viral for your dissertation. Mm. Was the same, did you have the same level of support? In, in... <laughs> my supervisor ghosted me. What? Wow. My supervisor ghosted okay. me. So wow, that's mad, you know. The reason that I even decided to do my dissertation was because when I got to Cambridge, I started to question who on earth I was because I landed in this university and you've got the University of Cambridge representing what it needs to be British, right? And that's like very white. And I remember like getting to Cindy's, which is like this club for those who don't know. And I remember the first thing someone said to me, obviously a white kid, when I was in the club was like oh where are you from and I was like oh I'm from Brixton he was like oh my god how many times have you been stabbed very excited Ugh. and I said the words came out of their mouth oh my god. yeah very happily obviously you know you felt mm. comfortable and I was like this that isn't the way I want to be seen or be understood but I also met a lot of international students from Nigeria who were like you're not really Nigerian like do you speak do you speak Yoruba how many times mm. have you been to Nigeria etc etc so I was like mm. Mm. Well then, you know, what is what is a semblance of home to me? And I think back then, you know, this is 2012, it's not even that long ago, but the only other representations that I saw in terms of on screen for black people were like African-American depictions, which were all fun and well and good, but they mm. didn't really provide me with the proximity to the home that I understood. Mm. And so I started watching Nollywood films in my spare time as a bit of an escape. And then because I was studying politics, psychology and sociology, politics was pretty much political philosophy, which I found boring. Um, and then sociology, I started to look at, I think it was like Adorno and Horkheimer, they were talking about the culture industry and the impact of the culture, of popular culture on people. And I was like, okay, cool. So why is it that I watch these Nollywood films? Why is it that I, I, I like watching these films, even though, you know, at that time I'd been to Nigeria maybe two or three times. And so even to be able to do my dissertation on the impact of Nigerian film on identity formation was a struggle. I had to couch it in these German philosophers and what popular culture meant. And then when I started looking for information about diasporas, it was either the Jewish diaspora or this like one study I could find about the Italian diaspora and media and culture. And so I would go into meetings with my supervisor 
and be like, okay, cool. I want to, you know, talk about this and that and the other. And she was like, I don't understand why that's important. Like, what, why is this relevant? Like all of these things. And so I essentially wrote that by myself with the help of other friends. <laughs> that is so mad. <laughs> wrote it by myself. And then for my final draft that I needed to send to her. Now, to be honest, I feel like supervisors actually ghosted people a lot at university. I think a lot of people are like, oh, Cambridge is so amazing. It's so excellent. You have all these experts. Yeah, they're mm. experts in their own field. And so they don't have time for you because mm, you're just like, an lot, yeah. like you're part of their package. But she was very, I don't find that she felt the need to really pay attention. She was like, you'll be fine. You'll get a 2-1 or whatever. I ended mm. up with a starred first for it because I guess I had Come to hard in order to be able to couch it in their understanding but also make yeah. it re- very relevant to the people I was actually interviewing and like speaking about it's so funny like my dedication <laughs> I think it went viral because my dedication was like for all of the apps it's funny because the support was minimal in the first instance and then when I got started first even the the people at my college were something like oh hi precious like you know oh what I mean? Like, actually, when, I you get, when you get a good score on a set and suddenly everyone knows your name. Oh, that's, mm. yeah. What was your so dissertation what, actually on? So it was looking at how, um, it was basically, I can't even remember what the title was now because it was so long ago. Yeah. Essentially, it was looking at the impact that Nollywood films had on identity formation okay. for the second generation diaspora. So mm. people essentially like myself who were born and raised here, grew up on a certain type of Nollywood Mm. Um, because you know back then there were a lot of like images of like black magic judge and mm. you know it wasn't cool to be african i really feel like it was afro beats that yeah, made yeah, it palatable yeah. yeah for sure and then the film started to become better quality and so a lot of a lot of people started to watch them in a, in, in a more entertainment wise capacity whereas i think what came out of my research was that a lot of our parents at the time had used the films as a form of like cultural transmission. So to show us how Nigerians behave, mm-hmm. to teach us like moral lessons. Mm-hmm. But so they didn't really care about the quality. They were just like, you know, don't do this. Prostitution is bad. Go to church. <laughs> things. And so those images weren't that fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they got better. It's very interesting because um, my, and I, and I know like a lot of West Indian um, older West Indian people love Nollywood as well. Like mm. if you go into like hairdressers or whatever, that Nollywood will be on for sure. And it's like, yeah, my 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 when my grandma was um when she was alive, um, my Jamaican grandma, she used to love Nollywood for that reason. It was like, like you she like I would come in and she like you know you 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 have to watch this because you know you're gonna learn a good lesson from this and like mm. and like I remember like at the end of the films there would be like a little kind of like I guess like a an exaltation to God as well. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. And like, I think it's kind of like, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's like a, a West Indian thing or it's just my grandma, but I think for her, like stories that came from, from Africa were like, they were like sort of really well grounded. She saw like sort of like African stories as like, really like, I, I guess also because some, my grandma, she was like, you know, very religious, very, very Christian. Mm-hmm. And also West Africa is very much like that as well. There's a lot of similarities, obviously, between 
um, the Caribbean and, and West Africa. And that's one of them, especially for the elders. But she was just like, yeah, you need to watch it. And I just come in and be like, no, grandma, like, no, I'm, I'm good. You know, just, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll just have some food and go. But she's like, no, make sure you watch this. Blah, 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 blah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just very interesting how, for, at least for us, that was like how it was sort of, how Africanness was sort of portrayed to us. It was like a very grounding thing. Like this is, this is ultimately our roots. And you need to pay attention to this. This is something to learn from. Like, of course, it was only, like, one sort of depiction, right? So very Christian, like, there weren't Mm -hmm. a lot, like, you know, there wasn't any Islam or there wasn't, Mm -hmm. God forbid there was any atheism, right? Like, it Mm. was very a very specific depiction of what it meant to be, I guess, Nigerian in those films. But those were also the English language films, right? Because there Mm. there were, like, Ibo films, the Yoruba films, which also have different stories. But when it came to the English language, like, what I found, especially with um, studies about the Caribbean as well, is that it was also about um, the depiction of, like, the representation of body image. Mm. So thicker right. women. Um, okay. Like, older mm. women as well. Whereas, like, I think in a lot of African-American stuff at the time, like, I guess a lot of people liked that it was uninhibited by, like, Western beauty ideals for a season. Because mm. I think now the films that they try to make a bit more international you know, there's a bit of a change in the way that the images come out, but mm. morality, body image, and then also across Africa, it's funny that a lot of these films are also used to help communicate how be- to speak English better because it's easier to learn a language that is more closer to your intonation. So English with an African accent. Oh, okay. Like we push aside the ones where they had those really bad, like American accents because that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, like those films, there's just so much within them. And I just had a lot of fun reading about why that's important. And so after the sort of success and virality of your dissertation how did did your supervisor get back in touch did she unghost did she unblock you on whatsapp like what happened <laughs> i promise you i never heard from this woman again oh my goodness it's so funny like but i don't know you know that was my first experience of undergrad so i don't know if that's normal or whatever if i was supposed to email her and thank her but obviously i wasn't going to do that because to be i'll honest, tell you what for my for my dissertation as well like yeah, I I think I'm not sure sure who ghosted who first, but yeah, I definitely didn't really keep in touch with my supervisor like that. Yeah. I think she, again, she was another person that was like um very sort of like high real estate, like she was a bit of a like a, one of them star academics sort of thing, and she was just she was busy. Yeah. Um and yeah, I um yeah I, yeah we ghosted each other, so I think it happens a fair amount to be honest. Yeah. It's just I- um yeah. But we made it in the end, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, then you bro. ended up, so then, wait, so after that, then you were doing jobs and stuff, and then somehow you ended up lecturing on the same kind of stuff. Yeah, so after I crowdfunded, I ended up at SOAS, right? And I yeah. did a master's in African studies. So SOAS is the School of Oriental and African Studies, for those who don't know, and it's part of the University of London. So I set out to specifically do a master's in African studies, focusing on African film. Mm. And, and when I say African film, I mean African film because we were looking at it from the, like it's almost inception where we're talking about Francophone countries and the influence of the French on funding film. Interesting. And you know, that's a lot of art house stuff on the French speaking side, starting with like Osman Sembene and all these people. But, 
um, I did a lot of film studies and then anthropology. So the anthropology of West Africa, the anthropology of East Africa. But for my film paper, my lecturer, whose name is Linda Wadavi, she is white South African. And she is so funny because she had actually done her master's or her PhD at my college in Cambridge, but we had never met because she had right. like gone uh, far before me. And I had initially wanted her to supervise me on my dissertation, but she was on maternity leave. Anyway, so I go to, I go to SOAS, meet this woman. And I'm like, yeah, I did this thing when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge. And she was like, oh my God, that was you. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> yeah, I guess it was. And so because our um, course was broken down into different segments, of African film, when it came to Nollywood, she was like, look, precious, I can do this from the outside perspective, but actually I think you have done so much research into this space. And she'd obviously, she'd read my dissertation at that time, I shared it with her. She was like, why don't you just provide this lecture? Um, But not only did I lecture to my master's class, she also had me lecture her undergraduate course as well. That's amazing. So I literally, like, we worked in collaboration, but I basically used a lot of my own independent research. Some of the stuff that obviously she had oversight on because, you know, she'd been doing it for a lot longer. And yeah, <laughs> lectured. I gave the lecture <laughs> for, the, for the course I was on. And I was like, ah! That's, Wow. So you taught the course that you were studying? Literally. That's so <laughs> funny, That's man. Mad. That is groundbreaking stuff. <laughs> Oh um, my days. How do you even how do you research Nollywood? I'm just curious. Like you and you know when you say like, oh I know that before you were like asking people mm. uh, for your undergrad, but then when it came to your masters, like what mm. kind of what does that research look like? I mean it really depends, right? You can research anything about anything, but Nollywood as a film industry, you could look at the economic impacts, right? But I was looking particularly at the social and cultural impacts mm. on communities. So Firstly, I looked at where these films are being consumed. So like exactly what Patrick is saying, like, why is it consumed in the West Indies? Why is it consumed in East Africa? Why is it consumed beyond Nigeria? Because Nigerians are very particular, right? And the depictions of Nigeria are very particular in these Mm. films, whether they're like the village films or the city films. It's still very Nigerian. Like you can tell a Nigerian from far away. So why do these films, why are these films popular? So I was essentially looking at what other people had said, but it was really funny because they either looked at people on the continent of Africa, in the West Indies or in the US, and there wasn't a lot of research on the UK diaspora, which is what fueled the first dissertation. Right, right. So for my master's, instead of talking to people, as I'd done for my undergrad, I just looked at what these films were saying over time. So I looked at the initial Nollywood films that started with like Living in Bondage, which has just had like, it had a remake actually this year um, where they did a sequel kind of looking at wealth, etc., and looked at what we have today. We've got web series that are like coming out of Nigeria. We've got film shorts that are coming out of Nigeria and what, what is being said through these films. So there were like a whole series of films. I'm sure a lot of people, whether they're Nigerian or not, have like heard of Sofia in London, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where he comes down, he moves mad in London, but ultimately <laughs> right? because he doesn't get swindled. Like they tried to swindle him out of his inheritance and he is not swindled. Now that is a very interesting story from someone who ultimately comes from Nigeria and doesn't know how to use a toilet or goes into McDonald's and asks for a giggy bread. Like <laughs> looking at that kind of film, there were also a series of other films. So there was Mr. Ibu in London. There was, um, oh, I can't even remember. 
there was like another Ibo lady. And then in 2016, 17, there was Jennifer in London. So I was looking at, okay, what do these films say about migration? Mm. About coming to the UK and saying, okay, I'm going to go to this place where the grass is greener. And in every single film, the grass is not greener. Um, so just thinking like looking at things like that like what can we learn from these films about what these filmmakers are saying but also how do these films make people feel like storytelling is very important across the world but African storytelling I think has a particular impact when you are far removed from the continent and identify as African let alone people who don't identify as coming as, as African at all and they are looking at these films because the insults that we used to receive as children in primary school, came from people's access to Nollywood. <laughs> like, they mm, used to shave yeah. us. Mm. And now you've got films and obviously music videos, right, that are showing, like, a different kind of wealth. And, you know, you see this in Ghana as well. Like, Ghana is also producing a lot of great films. Um, so yeah, I was just looking at that, like, researching what do these films say for their, their content in particular. Because I don't think a lot of people have actually done that. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting, man. Because I've never really thought about it, honestly, like in that depth until you just explained it, particularly about the migration patterns and why Why would you tell that story in a film? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's it. Can I, can I get a copy of that? Just because like, <laughs> I feel like I could actually learn a lot from reading it. Yeah, I kind of want to. Yeah. Is it on the public domain? Like if people do want to read it. Well, okay, so, I mean, yeah, I might as well say it. So under lockdown, I was like... Who am I? Where am I going? Mm. <laughs> and so I've actually started building a website. So it's called um, Asha, which means culture in Yoruba. But um, the website, it's not finished yet, but it's, uh, the domain is contentfrom.co. So it's all about content from the continent, right? Mm. Um, and I'm just going to put all my writing on there. I'm like, oh. why not? The dissertations are long. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's a long read, but I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. Sure, man. Sure. You know what? Oh, I Anyway, I'm just going to ask because I don't want to. Um, I, I don't want to lose this question because it's in my front from my head. You know, when you said how, like, obviously the the pe- like people who aren't just Nigerian are watching Nollywood films, mm-hmm. but then Nollywood films don't make it into like the mainstream, so they're not like on Netflix or in the cinema or not accessed by like a predominantly white audience. Mm-hmm. Why is that? I mean, there are a number of reasons for that I think first of all these films I guess there are two sides to it so Nollywood films have often been known for quantity and not quality and so if you're gonna if someone like Netflix or someone is gonna pick up a film then it has to be of a certain standard like you're not gonna go to Netflix and and watch something nonsensical it just it doesn't make sense whereas like YouTube when it became free to just like upload your stuff to YouTube Mm. it was like oh wow cool I can access this content and I can't really tell you how these films have traveled to like the Caribbean or here or there apart from the fact that Nigerians are absolutely everywhere (laughs) like I went to one time and met a Nigerian family and I said why are you like how where was this singapore wow that's crazy like it was it was really weird but these films are making their way around the world and ultimately people like what they like like i can't tell you why or i I can probably tell you why i like the avengers right it's a good versus bad story Mm-hmm. but like when it comes to Nollywood like a lot of them are about like romance or family relationships like betrayal there's so much drama in it 
And it's really interesting that I think a lot of times these films are also about escape. Like there is something very familiar about the images being depicted in these films because they are like Nigerians. So the way that the aunties behave are aunties that I know. You know, the way that the 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 men behave are are stereotypes of men that I know. But like also the environment is still very different, right? I have I wasn't born and raised in Lagos. I wasn't I didn't grow up in a village, etc. So there's it's that bit removed where I can forget about the issues that I'm facing in the mm-hmm. UK or the issues that I'm facing on my day to day because you know their life is a bit crazier than mine. So let me watch this for a bit and then we'll go back to doing what we're doing. And it's funny because as much as I was annoyed by like looking at the um the theory of like the culture industry when I was an undergrad, you know, there's 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 some merit to understanding that like popular culture is popular because there are bits that are relatable and there are bits that are ultimately outrageous. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's just making me think about, you know, like when I'm on a plane and when you go through the options of what films are available on planes, like nowadays there are a lot of um, East Asian films available. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of it's to do with the success of think it was Parasite and like how that got all these awards and yeah. all this stuff. And, you know, you've got like a lot of um, Korean film, a lot of Japanese film, Chinese film, and then even like Bollywood seems to be on every flight now, like you get at least a couple of options. But then it, when you were talking, it's making, oh yeah, I've never seen an, like any African film available on any flight going mm. but i also oh, I, I, I also think it's a maturation process as well because mm. i was i was watching something about um jackie chan the other week about the fact that so jackie chan's from hong kong and he used to be uh, mr hong kong in terms of the the conflict between so the uk and hong kong and china and hong kong and one day he stopped kind of representing hong kong because he wanted to get himself into hollywood and so, of course, we all know Jackie Chan from Rush Hour and stuff like that. And that's kind of his critical claim. But he made a bunch of movies before mm-hmm. um, that, you know, was a Chinese film, basically. But mm. what happened over time was that uh, Chinese Hollywood has grown to a point that it's now fairly popular. Um, and almost in terms of dollar value, I think it might be on par with Hollywood or slightly larger, I think. But it's also the fact that there's such a big domestic market in China. There's kind of no need for for Chinese Hollywood to go and have to try and beat Hollywood, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. It's just the money's there. And I was just, and you know, when you think about how long Jackie Chan was doing these films, mm. same as Bruce Lee as as well. Um, like, I, what was one of his stories? I'm, I remember buying DVD of his Police Story. That was it. Like one of his classic Chinese films, and that was '85. And so you think this is 85 to now 2020. That's kind of the development of Chinese Hollywood. And so I think Nollywood is slightly kind of an iteration behind um, Chinese Hollywood, so to speak. So it's almost like there's a question of does Nollywood actually need to be as international as Hollywood in terms of critical acclaim, especially if the dollar value is there, right? If the money's there, then you don't have to necessarily export it. We'll just, as Precious alluded to, we'll just export itself. People will just, oh, have a look at this on YouTube, have a look at this DVD, have a look at this and this and this. And so it doesn't really necessarily need to travel. Whereas when you think about, um, a bit like the music industry, you think about the people who are doing the movies in Hollywood, you know, Sony, Universal, um, 20th Century Fox, they need the thing to travel because they need to generate the revenues around an international basis. But, you know, some big Chinese producer doesn't need to do it some big bollywood producer doesn't necessarily need to do it and i guess it's maybe the same thing for nollywood i don't know mm, mm. i would say that like actually it depends right so nollywood is prolific but 
it doesn't actually make that much money for the filmmakers simply because there's so much piracy. So the idea of like moving into like um, Netflix or Amazon Prime is actually for the filmmakers, it's about making money that they can actually access, <laughs> which is mm. a bit wild because funny what you said about planes, because actually I've been seeing Nollywood films on planes from about 2003. Oh, swear. But it also depends on where you're flying to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because right? sometimes they will, they will only put content on that they think, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. You're going to be able to watch. But you will start to see more and more because, again, the production values get higher. And so it's, it's a film that you want to, you, you can put on your platform. Let's be honest. Sometimes you're watching a Nollywood film and the, the, the sound cuts. If you're on a plane with like some funky headphones, and the sound has like dropped, you're not going to be able to hear half of the film. So you're not, not, you're not going to see that. Whereas like now, I don't know if anyone remembers last year, this time last year actually, it was November, when Lionheart, which was like, you know, one of the first like uh, Netflix produced Nigerian films by Genevieve Naji, uh, was up for best international picture or was, was submitted for best international picture at the Oscars and then rejected because mm. it was an international film but it was predominantly in English. And so it didn't count. Oh. And it's really, and so there was this whole conversation about number one, does Nollywood need, or does Nigerian film, funnily enough, need the validation of Hollywood in order to Mm -hmm. be relevant? Because if you think about the population of Nigeria alone, Mm -hmm. what what validation are you looking for? Mm -hmm. Right? Like Nollywood really was created as a film industry that was about making profit, the storytelling was kind of, kind of a byproduct. Like when you watch some Nollywood films, and I'm talking about the older ones in general, like you know exactly what's going to happen, and you watch it anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you just want a bit of escape. So mm. you have you have Lionheart being rejected, and then literally on Friday, this film by um, Kunle Afalayan came out called Citation. Now, Kunle Afalayan is someone who, I don't think he's ever called himself a Nollywood director, and I don't think he would, because he, I think he's like, I'm a Nigerian filmmaker, let me be known as that. Mm-hmm. However, this film is coming out of Nigeria. I promise you, half of it is in French. The other quarter is in Yoruba. Another quarter is in English, and there's like one conversation in Portuguese. And there is no way that he didn't make those decisions in order to make it uh, possible for him mm. to submit it for that Oscar. Right? Oh, I see. Because he's been mm. exhibiting at film festivals around the world for, I'd say, the last 10 years, whereas mm. traditional Nollywood producers don't create their mm. films for the West, I guess. They create it for a domestic audience, bearing in mind that these films initially weren't created for the big screen. Nollywood has actually gone backwards. It started on small screens in terms of being in people's homes, graduated to videos, then to DVDs. And actually cinema has only come back into popularity in the last, I'd say like 10, 15 years because security issues were a problem at the time. So all of the Mm. cinemas in Nigeria shut down in like the late 80s, early 90s. And that's when Hollywood was born. I see, I see. So it it started off very much as, I guess, um, as an informal industry then. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't a cinema industry. It wasn't. Very I see that makes makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So um, I had a question actually um, about it was yeah it was about the impact of Nollywood, but not so much um, as a kind of cultural thing. Well, I guess it's still cultural, but more political. Um, so basically, my question was, um, well, with the way that Hollywood is, um, Hollywood, I feel, is kind of like a 
it's a almost yeah i'd say a propaganda machine um for sort of the status quo of sort of i guess um a lot of the sort of staples of um american culture um and i would say that you know america's like biggest export um is actually its its culture and that's and and hollywood is one of the biggest um mediums that it uses um but i was just wondering with nigeria and you mentioned how um cinemas closed down in the 1980s um because of security risks i imagine that's because of like the sort of political turbulence at the time um so yeah it was partly that so security issues were, were one thing but also like the structural adjustment policies that came in to a lot of countries actually on the right just meant that money was squeezed out of the culture industry i see um, i see there, there, there was nothing to produce there was nothing to see Fair. but yeah there was instability um, yeah yeah because um so basically my question is that n- now that sort of nigeria is sort of going through a process of um change again um revolution i suppose um has that affected the output of um sort of nollywood producers like where do um filmmakers within the nigerian film industry kind of sit when it comes to sort of making political statements is it something that is just sort of is 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 nollywood treated as purely as an escape and it doesn't sort of kind of wade into i guess these kind of heavier situations is it like do, do people use Nollywood as purely as an escape or is it is it is it kind of a, a space for kind of I guess political statements and activism um mm. yeah I so I would say that this this gets into a much deeper conversation about you know what is Nollywood is it representative of the entire Nigerian film industry or do we have other things because like mm-hmm. even in Hollywood right you've got Hollywood films then you've got like the indies mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. different but you know they're films that come out of America mm-hmm, <laughs> same mm-hmm. with everyone else and Nigeria also definitely has that right we've also yeah. got animations and stuff coming out in terms of the Nollywood industry whether you want to call it like Nollywood, New Nollywood, the films that have higher um, higher production values and are created for mass markets, mm. the films you are starting to see come out do have deeper political uh, deeper political messages coming out of them. And mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that Nollywood initially didn't have it. It just means that they weren't as explicit. So in in Nollywood films, you always have, like, strong women. You always have, like, people, yes, pursuing wealth, but always, you know, trying to to find a better way of living. Now, Mm. a lot of films coming out. We've had films created about um, the Ebola crisis. Like, you've had films come out. Even this film citation that came out last, uh, on Friday, it was written based off of the BBC expose about sex for grades on the continent right so these films are saying particular things Mm -hmm. and will continue to say particular things also because i think as the film industry is recognized as being more important there's more funding and so you have the freedom to write different stories yeah i think before a lot of stories were being created that would sell and so you kind of sell what you know is popular. So, mm. you know, all this stuff about like Black Panther, it's like, you know, they wouldn't make an, like a Marvel film with an all black cast because it won't sell. Like, similarly, like, I think capitalism still reigns. And so you do have films that have 
more explicit political messages. I know someone one day, or probably right now, is working on a film about what happened at the Lucky Tollgate on the 20th of October. Mm, mm, it's mm, been done. Mm, and we mm, will see it. And mm. we'll see so, what happens with it, right? Because there's mm. also, there is also censorship. So there's a film, actually, that's meant to be coming out. I can't remember when, but it's about, like, an LGBT couple. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been banned before. Yeah, it was, I was going to say. Yeah, it was mm. banned before it was um, released. And there's a lot of conversation happening about that film right now because it's like, to what extent should the government be able to censor? Yeah, because I, I guess, yeah, funda- fundamentally my question was kind of like, um, what are the kind of things that do get funded and sort of, um, I guess, given a platform? Mm-hmm. Um is is there a kind of is there an anti-establishment kind of um element within the industry but yeah i guess you know you said that it's it's, it's a very broad industry and also but i guess the debate is whether nollywood is the entire entire nigerian film industry or like a kind of a school of cinema or mm. like one of the schools of cinema um but yeah sorry i was just gonna ask one more thing um when you mentioned funding um mm. Is that state funding or is that just sort of private, um, you know, investors? How does it, how does it work? So traditionally it was private investors hmm. and it was literally just really high net worth individuals, people who wanted to put money uh, behind these films and, you know, filmmaking in a lot of places, but especially in Nigeria probably was for a time, the privilege of the elite. Like you have to be able to, you have like high quality filmmaking is the privilege of the elite because you have to be able to fund this film somehow. Mm-hmm. Whereas the reason that Nollywood was also so pro- prolific in the initial sense is because it was very low budget. Like mm, okay. make a movie with 10K, but now the government itself, like state, the state does fund a lot of uh, arts and culture. There's a lot because they recognize that as a cultural export, it can make money. But what I would say about this, this thing about, um, the types of stories that we're seeing coming out of Nigeria as well, it's also about access. So the films that I'm talking about are films that I've been able to access because they've been put on Netflix or because they've been put on Amazon Prime or mm-hmm. YouTube. And even that in and of itself is, is a different ball game because there are also a lot of films that maybe are produced and because of streaming rights or because of the mm-hmm. conversations that are being had aren't available outside of the country for now. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of stories mm. that are probably being told that I just have Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm learning so much, man, because it's like an aerial film. I only remember, similar to you, Patrick, just being little and someone putting it on TV or like mm. saying, oh, we should watch this. And I also remember like just going around my Nigerian friends' houses when I was in primary school, you know, and just that just being what was on. In the yeah. And then since then, not really going out of my way to access those films. Yeah, yeah. I I link it quite a lot to my childhood as well, and I remember instances where, like my like whenever like the aunties and uncles whatever come round, mum will get like the popcorn, peanuts, etc. Everyone's chilling, and then we'll all be in the in the living room together in it, like me, my siblings, and then the guests and my parents, what have you. Mm. And then my mum will go and reach for like a film in it, and I won't lie to you, there was like there's a, there's a few different like genres within Nollywood. And like you were saying earlier, Precious, there's like the the village ones, there's the city ones, the romance ones, but then there's the juju things in it. And those used to scare me. Like, <laughs> <when my> mom, <laughs> wanted to put them on, yeah. I'm crying. Like, I'm like, nah, nah, I don't want to watch it. I don't want to watch it. 
bare question and I'll be like, oh, is it, is it one of the juju ones? Is it juju? <laughs> like, oh, no, no, don't worry. It's a nice one. I see one witch doctor and I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> Get me. But um, oh, as well as that, actually, is, is um, I remember, obviously, as being a, a British Ghanaian person, there were times when Ghanaian filmmakers and Nigerian filmmakers would collaborate. Yeah. Um, or at least, like, there would be Ghanaian actors within Nigerian movies and, like, I remember Van Vicker and like there was um the Jackie Apia yeah and a few other people that became quite prominent within um Nollywood films as well and I was wondering like do you see that I don't know if that still occurs I don't think it really does but do you see that something that could re-blossom and also um do you see that happening with other countries within the continent like there being more collaborations uh-huh. Yeah, I do. And it, it is happening. Like, it's so amazing that, like, you see... So there are a lot of Ghanaian... Even if the Ghanaian actors aren't as prominent in, like, Nollywood as an industry, just because I think they're starting to make a lot of their own content, what you do see is a lot of reference to other cultures mm. more and more within Nigerian content. So, like, even when watching Skinny Girl in Transit, there was this whole thing about having this, like, Kenyan guy, Nick... Nick Mutuma, I think his name is. Um, Nick Mutuma was like a, a recurring character on Skinny Girl in Transit. I also saw him in two or three other like web series and films, right? Mm. That were Nigerian. Similarly, you have a lot of reference, even just to Ghanaian culture. So in a lot of Nigerian films, when you're looking at like higher education universities, there are a lot of Ghanaians in Nigeria. There are a lot of Nigerians in Ghana. So yeah. you just have you have Ghanaians in, in the films like citation also goes over to Senegal so we're now seeing a lot of like francophone references mm. again I think Kunle Falayan I'll call him Uncle Kunle like he was he, he's really trying to do something with that film but you do see it in other Nigerian films where you've got Kenyans you've got Ghanaians like you have like one or two people either from Ivory Coast or Senegal just because I think like trade has also just become international. And so it, it is being reflected in the films that are focused on the more urban areas, mm-hmm. which I think is really great and really important because yeah, when we're talking about content from the continent, like there really is a mix. You've got Burner Boy collaborating with like Salty Soul in music mm-hmm. and you've got, you've got Nick in, in Nigerian films, etc. Like there's so much and it will continue to happen. Yeah, and it's interesting as well. Like it all still gets thrown under the banner of Nollywood. Like, yeah. um, there's not a distinct, uh, like the Ghanaian uh film industry hasn't got its own brand as 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 such. I think they tried to create the Gollywood team, and I was like, nah, come on, man. you know, yeah. forcing yeah. it in it. But um, yeah, it's cool as well. It all falls under the Nollywood banner, and I mean, I don't really see people complaining about that per se. But um, no, I just I, lo- I love the the fact that it can expand and and um, yeah, just just integrate with other countries in the continent. That's that's sick. I see that's been like a really um, good progression of the industry. And also the way it's kind of made, I guess, some form of popular culture. Like when you go on social media, you see memes of Mama Patience or yeah. Aki and Popo. You know the amount of people that use Aki and Popo references, and they may have never seen. Mm. a film you know what i'm saying so it's it's reach it's you know part of part of the cultural canon i think yeah for sure for sure for sure and that and that also comes when when this generation has their own impact right so like we 
you know, when we talk about black Twitter, whatever you want to call it, the fact that like Nollywood memes are so prolific is because we are the ones who are active. And so we are drawing our own cultural references and we'll continue mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I think that was that's really interesting, and I could, I honestly want to go and watch some films now. Like that's why I had this conversation. <laughs> so I'm want... glad. This is where I want my conversations to end. Do you, do you have a top five of um, top five Nollywood films? Quickly, for, I spit in Tom to ask that question. I like that's your top five dead or alive. That is very, very, very difficult in terms of films. I wouldn't say top five just because I love different films for different reasons. Things that I would suggest that people watch just in general, um, just to get a flavour of maybe like the industry and like how it has changed and progressed. Definitely everyone should watch Osofia in London. And even if you watch it as a child, you need to watch it again because of how you'll read it, having gone through through life. Do you know what I mean? That film Mm. came out in the like, maybe 2001, or like the late 90s. And having grown up, done our own thing in this country, we've seen just all sorts in the world. One should watch it again. Mm. Everyone should also watch The Wedding Party just because, to be honest, it's a great Nollywood film. And I think regardless of how well it performed in the, in the cinemas, it is just the depiction of a typical Nigerian film, but with very high production values. Um, definitely love that one. I would also say, if you want to watch something a bit, different king of boys is also just an excellent film because it shows a, it's a very different nollywood it's about like a, a female crime boss um oh. yeah she's bad you know he says bad, <laughs> bad. bad. <laughs> with the g in front you know <laughs> i'm telling you that one shake your soul i think everyone should watch citation just because it's very hard hitting um but those are, you know, those are all actually quite new Nollywood films. In terms of old Nollywood films that you can access and that looks um, at the village, there's another one called um, Stronger Than Pain. And that one you'll only probably be able to find on YouTube, similarly with Osofia in London. But that is a village film and it looks at this couple who essentially the wife is abusive. She is actually an abusive wife, but mm. this man loves her relentlessly. And it looks at the impact of the community on their marriage at that time, which I think is very typical of a lot of um, a lot of families in general. Like when you marry someone, you marry into their family. So <laughs> if if people are going to have an impact on your relationship, it's very interesting to see it in a village context. So those mm. are five that kind of span uh, the Nollywood timeline. That's amazing, mad. Do you know? I just, wanna, I just want to say something because I just I just pulled up a. Um, I just saw a report on the contribution of the industry, so arts, entertainment and recreation in Nigeria, which in Nollywood is obviously a big part of that. And so back in 2016-17, it contributed 2.3% to Nigeria's GDP or uh, Naira equivalent of $239 billion. So it's, you know, it punches above its weight in terms of reach because 2.3 is quite a small number, but in terms of the, the, you know, the actual reach it can have, it shows you that it's been punching above its weight for a long time. So. 100%. Because it's also, a, like, even though Nollywood is an informal industry, most, when you look at the continent, right, like, most, most of the workforce are informal workers. But when you, when you amalgamate 
Nollywood as an industry or like filmmaking as an industry, actually in terms of formalization, it's actually the second largest employer in the country. Wow. Very, very strange. Mad. But yeah, a lot of people are involved. I mean, obviously everyone's hustling on the continent, right? But filmmaking is actually like the second largest like formal in like air quotes employer in Nigeria. That's amazing. Um, cool. Man, Precious, you have like really just brought a lot of interesting, interesting topics to this uh, this discussion. And it's, it's one of those ones where, you know, when you grow up on something, you kind of take it for granted and don't really appreciate the the depth of, um, just the depth of, of the actual conversations that it, it can create and um, the impact it's had. And you've given us a, a, a really good insight into that. So thank you so much for joining um any last thoughts or how uh, do we want to wrap up yeah i just think precious in terms of you know obviously you've given us the website but often our listeners want to stay in touch with the guests themselves mm-hmm. how can people find you plug yourself uh well i don't use instagram that much but i should however i do use twitter i may need to complain about you know well, Trump is gone now, so it's fine. But um, <laughs> yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Precious Olade. So it's Precious and then O-L-A-D-E. Um, and then, yeah, if you actually go onto the website contentfrom.co, then like there's a newsletter you can sign up to. And just, yeah, DM me. I'm, I'm about. I'm also on LinkedIn, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't DM me on that. <laughs> Sick. All right, perfect. And... You, you were with the Over the Bridge cast. If you want to reach out to us via email, otbpodcastuk at gmail.com. Um, Twitter, Instagram, otbpodcastuk. We love hearing your thoughts on things and feedback, etc. So yeah, hit us up and enjoy the rest of your weekends or weeks. I forgot people listen to this from wherever they can. <laughs> All right, please, over and out. <laughs>